0: Welcome to the Cutting Floor, a weekly mini podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week, we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon, or that were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 1, verse 26 through 31, and chapter 2, verse 4 through 15, which was the first in your mini-series, Being Human. Does the command to be fruitful and multiply still apply today?
1: I think the answer to that is yes, but in a qualified sense. So the command to be fruitful and multiply is given in a few places in the Genesis narrative, most prominently obviously there in Genesis chapter 1 but it will recur again uh, in Genesis chapter nine. So this is immediately after the events of the flood and Noah is commanded in chapter nine, verse seven, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So we're gonna look at that, uh, obviously when we get to Genesis chapter nine, but a few similarities that we can immediately identify. Just like the commission was given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply when the earth was empty, So also Noah, all of the rest of creation has been wiped out. All of humanity is now bound up in Noah and his family. And so we're going to see later that Noah is in essence like the new Adam for a new creation that God has wiped the slate clean. And so this command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth is important because once again, there's this need to fill the earth with image bearers. Now, how does that, to your question, apply to us today? I mentioned in my sermon, I think that the correlation that uh, we are given is actually found in the Great Commission, that Jesus tells us to be fruitful and multiply, but in different language, to go and make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all that Christ has commanded us. And so I think that the intent of the Great Commission is to realize the same vision of the commission mandate in Genesis chapter 1 to fill the earth with image bearers, but this time through the gospel to see people transformed into the image of Jesus Christ.
0: So are believers supposed to take the command literally and have large families?
1: I read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is a, a classic, and he says a lot of really excellent things in there about the image of God and about this chapter and section of the book of Genesis. But one area I would disagree with him on, he makes the comment that in order to fulfill this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, that believers should have a minimum of three children uh, so that they are at least providing a little bit more than the the couple that's, you know, the originator of the family, that they are in some way multiplying. I think that trying to dial in a number here uh, for the number of children that believers should have is, one, misguided even in the sense of the original text. The idea here is just that there is going to be this fruitfulness of this growing family of God that is going to fill the whole earth. That's going to happen naturally in the creation mandate for Adam and Eve. But but when we think about how that applies to our context, I think that the idea of childbearing is no longer the main emphasis of what this filling and multiplying mandate means for us. As I said before, I think Christ is clearly trying to draw a connection to this great commission from the great commission to the creation mandate and so now the intent of the great commission is is the, the spiritual fulfillment of the vision cast in Genesis chapter 1
0: As Christians do we need to be especially concerned about the environment since God called us to rule and reign over creation
1: I think that there's two errors that we can make as Christians when it comes to the environment the first is that we neglect the environment or we mistreat the environment and we think that uh, because we are able to reign and rule over it that that means we can um, disregard it and treat it as having little value. And it's very clear all throughout the scriptures that God looks upon his creation as something that witnesses and brings him glory. And so if that's how God views his creation, then I think that we should similarly place a high value on the world that God has made and also our commission to steward it well. So one error is to mistreat the creation or view it as having little value. I think the other error that we see, and this is maybe the more common one in our world today, is to place such a high value on the creation Or in this case, many of our society wouldn't even view it as creation at all. They would just view it as the natural world that's the result of natural processes. But regardless, to, to view the natural world as having such a high value that humankind is almost inferior in comparison to the natural world. That would be a fundamentally wrong-headed view if we accept the worldview that Genesis 1 shapes for us, that God created all things, including all living things. The last living thing he created was man, that he made this man and woman in his image and that he gave them dominion over his creation so that they are set above both in terms of the quality of their essence of who they are and in terms of their position of authority over the rest of creation. And so when it comes to the kind of environmentalism that we see today that seeks to elevate the environment around us over and above humankind, and in fact tends to blame humankind for all of the woes that we see in the world today, that is an equal imbalance when it comes to viewing our relationship with creation. So I think as image bearers, we are responsible to enjoy fellowship with experience creation and cultivated in ways that respect god's own glory that creation reveals while not being subjected to the creation we bring the creation to into subjection not the other way around
0: in genesis 2 5 it says that no plants had sprung up from the ground but in the previous chapter it says that all plants and vegetation were created on day 3 It seems like a contradiction. So were plants created on day three, or did they come after the six days of creation?
1: I think it's a really insightful question, and one that is, at first glance, seems to be difficult. When God creates the man, or before he creates the man, it it mentions there in Genesis chapter 2 that this is before any plant had sprung up out of the ground. But we had already read back in Genesis chapter 1, as you said, that plant life was created on day three. So if if the events of Genesis chapter two are, are honing back in, zooming back in on the day six of creation, how can it be true that there was not already plant life when that had happened back on day three? I don't think that this is a contradiction for a couple of reasons. One, the word that we have there for the plants and the shrubs, we, we get two different words for that in chapter two. and And the one word has to do more with thistles and uh, bushes that are grow up in the wilderness. Uh, this is the same word that's used for the plant that Ishmael will, her, will later be hid by his mother under in order to receive some shade from the burning sun in the middle of the wilderness. So that word is almost exclusively used of kind of a desert vegetation. And so that doesn't seem to be the exact same kind of vegetation that we see growing uh, in day three of creation that is abundant and filled with life and has seeds in itself for its own kind, which seems to be this emphasis on abundance. That idea of uh, the, the plant or the shrub that is used in Genesis 2 refers to more of the desert life. So some commentators have noted that maybe this kind of desert bush uh, kind of Plant life is actually something that will develop after the fall. We'll, re, we'll find in Genesis chapter 3. God says that as a result of the curse, thorns and thistles will be produced by the ground. Uh, the second, and I think maybe mo- most significant point that Genesis 2 is making is not to say that there were absolutely no plants whatever uh, prior to the event of Genesis 6 of man's creation. Instead, if you'll notice, there's this emphasis on that there was no man to keep the ground, there was no man to husband it. Uh, the garden is planted, then Adam is placed inside of it. He's commanded to work and keep the garden. And so I think the implication of the plants that are being described in Genesis 2 that had not yet sprung up are not the natural vegetation that uh, God created on on day three of creation. But I think this is referring to the plant life that needs to be cultivated and husbanded. In other words, the kind of vegetation that happens is the result of the care and maintenance of a garden. So like uh, in my own backyard, I have plenty of plant life that springs up, but the things in our garden are there and they grow uh, because of the cultivation uh, that we do in in forming that garden. I think that is the type of plant life that's being described in Genesis 2. So it's not a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2.
0: This week, we have a couple listener questions. The first one is, God calls his creation very good, but he doesn't call it perfect. Is it wrong to call the pre-fall creation, including humankind, perfect?
1: I think that's an interesting question. I think we need to keep a couple of things in our mind. Number one, where does this creation comes from? come from? And it, it comes from God's own spoken word, which expresses his will for his creation. And so every act of creation prior to this point has been preceded by God's word, his command. And so in every respect— the world as it exists prior to the events of the fall is pres- is prescribed exactly by the perfect God who fashioned it. And so I think insofar as God says it's good, it's good, it's good in the opening days of creation then at the end of day six, he says it is very good. That is a definitive qualitative statement of the excellence of the creation. And so I think we can look at the sum total of what Genesis 1 is saying and, and identify that there is no nothing wanting, there is nothing lacking in the creation. But that being said, I do think that there is a future hope for creation of a perfected creation that is going to be even more gloriously realized in the new creation of the heaven and earth where God is dwelling with his people, where there is no temple. It, it recaptures and rekindles the vision of Eden. But it's even intensified, in, in to use biblical language, glorified or perfected, we might say. So while there's nothing lacking or there's nothing wrong in the original creation of Eden, there is still something yet to be more greatly realized that's coming. And so in God's ultimate purpose for the world we see even in the casting of Eden, there is something that he intends to supersede later through the victory that will come through Jesus Christ. And so I think that hopefully that answers the question to some extent, that there's nothing wanting in the original creation, and yet there is still something greater that's coming.
0: So it's not wrong to call it perfect.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's wrong to call it perfect. I think that expresses the fact that God is good, he created it, and he created it very good in accordance with his own character.
0: The second listener question is if the sun provides us light now and in heaven, God's glory gives it light. And Jesus is its lamp referenced in revelation 21 verse 23. And in the new Jerusalem, the Lord God will be their light referenced in revelation 22 verse five. What was the light that God created and separated from the darkness?
1: Hmm. My, I think my initial response to that is to say, uh, I really have no idea. Uh, I think what we can say is what we find in Hebrews chapter 11 that God formed everything that there is out of nothing so that nothing that is made is made out of the things that are visible. And so the light that we have described in Genesis chapter 1 is not is not simply the emanation of God's glory that is just lighting up space. I think the light that's described there in Genesis chapter 1 is actually tangible, physical light like we, can, like we see and experience in our universe, um, and it, it comes out of nothing. And so in the same way that we could ask the question, what is this matter or what is this darkness, light is similarly something that is just spoken out of nothing into existence by God and is based in nothing other than God's uh, creation, uh, the spoken creation of it. So it comes from nothing, and suddenly it is. And in that sense, it's miraculous and mysterious, just like all of the creation.
0: We will address the remaining listener questions in the coming weeks. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday mornings to questions at westcanon.org.